Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Sean, good to meet you, man. Thanks for taking some time to come on the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You're very, very welcome. We always like to get the podcast started with some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, so Sean Penrith. Um, I'm originally from Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, I ended up in the U.S. because we started a, a glass recycling company in South Africa, and we ended up putting a facility in the United Kingdom and then another one in Wisconsin and the U.S., and uh, I was the CEO for that company for about 14 years. And when we sold it, um, by that time, I was heavily immersed in the sustainability field, and I, uh, we sold the company and I moved to Portland, Oregon, because that, you know, at the time was sort of the hub of everything green. And I'd visited the city once before and, and really loved it, sort of reminded me of Cape Town a bit. And I took the role uh, as the executive director for a small uh, energy efficiency startup. And, you know, from there, my career progressed. I can take you down that road, but that's sort of where I come from, um, I've been involved in climate change, climate policy, carbon markets, sustainability, ESG, impact investing for around little, just under two decades now. Pretty awesome stuff, man. So in South Africa, there was money to be made in taking used glass bottles, and then you would, would make money from recycling it yourself as a private company. Is that typically how it works in the US as well when it comes to glass? Yeah, our business model was a bit different. Uh, we ended up developing a technology that we filed a patent uh, on for reclaiming uh, a bottle that entered the waste stream and repurposing it into high-end stemware. So we actually made a bunch of table stemware, uh, both for the retail market, for direct-to-consumer, and for corporates uh, who wanted to promote their beverage brand. And um so we were a very unusual company. I, I, I like to say that we were ahead of our time because at the time no one was doing it. We were a really unusual company. Uh, but what it did do is it really immersed me in the world of sustainability and, and uh, extended consumer responsibility um, in terms of developing a project that had a life beyond, you know, once it left your factory. And so we felt that we were delivering the ultimate product by repurposing a glass bottle. And yeah, it was an amazing company. Did you find yourself as the CEO of that company because you were interested in reducing the waste stream or because it was like more like a viable market opportunity? Yeah. So um, my partner and I, uh, when, when we decided to start that company, it was, it was driven by the fact that it was an incredibly um, innovative way to repurpose a bottle. And two, you know, glass was entering the waste stream and had little added value. And three, it was the emergence of sustainability um, and recycling, and we thought that we would ride that wave. Um, and we did. I mean, for 14 years, uh, he ran the engineering side of it. I ran the business operations side. And uh, it was um, a fascinating journey, and it, it taught me a lot. You know, I've, got, I've started six businesses. Some have been horrible failures. Um, but it really grounded me in, in how to build 
a market, how to enter into product market validation fit and, and that kind of thing. Well, those horrible failures are the most fun, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um, before we get into talking about your most recent venture, I'd love to hear about your experience at the Climate Trust and then eventually managing uh, Climate Trust Capital as well. Sure. Sure. So uh, very briefly, um, I, I took the energy efficiency um, initiative in Portland, Oregon, and we, and we grew that to a team of around 40 or 50 people and did that for five or six years. And then I left for a brief stint at a um, software company where I was a managing director and uh, developed a go-to-market strategy for a software risk platform for Fortune 1000 companies um, as they contemplated climate risk. Uh, the founder wanted to sell the company, and so I took my leave. And at the time, I was on the board of the Climate Trust. I was the vice chair. And we had been recruiting for an executive director unsuccessfully, and the board asked me if they, if I was open to them firing me or <laughs> open to me stepping down from the board and taking on the role of executive director, which I was very thrilled to do. We had an amazing team. And, you know, the Climate Trust is the country's oldest not-for-profit in carbon. Um, they were they were really right at the gate when a carbon asset was even contemplated. And they, let, they led the uh, offset quality initiative to try and help standardize quality. But anyway, so while we were there, um, the big challenge we had as a, as a not-for-profit is that our business model which was, I won't go into too technical detail, but there was a piece of policy in the state of Oregon that helped drive revenues uh, from utilities to the Climate Trust. And we could all read the writing on the wall that this monetary pathway was going to end. And so the task upon us was to come up with a new business model that would allow the Climate Trust to continue, to persist. And, uh, and so what we did after a bunch of review and analysis is landed on this notion that we would form uh, Climate Trust Capital as a carbon impact investment fund. And we would invest primarily in nature-based solutions in both the compliance of the regulated carbon market and the voluntary carbon market. And we did it to really prove that you could command an, a return based on environmental performance. And... I, you know, the, the fund went on to do rather well uh, in terms of returns. Again, I think we were early to market because now, today, Ethan, everybody and their brother is forming a, a carbon fund. I mean, I get calls all the time. But in those days, um, you know, if you weren't Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, the, the thought of creating a, a carbon fund, there had been a number of them prior, uh, but they had sort of met their fate, if you will. Um, and so it was a very innovative uh, experience for me because it really married what I was passionate about, which was how you bring environmental performance and revenue opportunities to people on the ground and how you couple that with people that are seeking returns, um, some sort of uh, IRR. And so it was, it was very um, exhilarating to be part of that effort. Anyway. So uh, I left the Climate Trust at the end of 2017 and in 2018 started Gordian Knot Strategies. And again, I saw this opportunity that the, we don't have a lot of what I like to call climate finance interpreters. Um, and so a lot of people say to me, what does Gordian do? And I get technical. But at a high level, what Gordian does is we translate what people need financially 
and we translate what, what the conservation or the impact-oriented community are doing on the ground such that there can be meaningful dialogue where at the end of the day, we can bring capital from those that have it to the people that need it. Um, and that's what we do. We design go-to-market strategies, impact assessment, um, climate finance mechanisms, enterprise financial models, impact assessments, and so on. And you know, it's a it's an interesting space to be in because you have to speak the language of finance and speak the language of finance of uh, conservation, which I do my best at doing. Um, but there's just not a lot of people that say. I'm a climate finance consultant, unless, of course, you're one of the big consulting three, you know, where they do have um, the environmental desk. And the folks that we work with are agencies and endowments and high net worth uh, family offices, um, corporations, not for profits, um, tribes, all sorts of really interesting. We, 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 we don't take work where um, we can't make an impact, it can't scale, and we don't like the people. So that's it's pretty simple how we um, engage new work. And can you, can you give me an example how uh, working with one of your projects might exactly go from like start to finish when like you're connecting these people? And I'm wondering if the, the finance people do, if you kind of find yourself translating between like conservationists and finance people, if they kind of see the world in very different ways. They do see the world in different ways. Um, you know, on the conservation side of things, you get really well-intentioned environmental scientists and academics, um, farmers, ranchers, people that know the land, work the land, but really don't understand how to turn that into a value proposition that would attract capital. And then on the capital side, they understand how to mobilize capital for returns, how to measure risk and so on, but they really don't understand the environment of nature-based solutions specifically. Um, and I think, you know, this is why the nature-based arena is fairly complex because you're, de you're dealing with um, biological systems, ecosystems that live, grow, die, get burnt, and so on. Um, and, and when you talk about technologies like carbon capture and storage, it is actually a lot easier for investors to understand. You capture a ton of CO2, you sequester it underground. If the systems are strong, it'll stay there. It's a, just a different conversation having it when we're talking about sequestering in a, in a range of trees, for example. So the translation piece is really important. An example of a project. So a couple of years ago, uh, American Forest Foundation and I connected. They wanted to they wanted to deliver a program that would enroll a number of small forested landowners that are typically excluded from the carbon market. So if you own land and you've got 100 acres, for example, it's really difficult for you to create a carbon project on 100 acres of forest land. And American Forest Foundation recognized this opportunity or this underserved community, given that they own almost two thirds of the land in the US. And they created a program called the Family Forest Carbon Program and what they wanted to do was try and figure out how to finance it. And initially, when I first met with them, you know, they had differing ideas ranging from philanthropy and donor advised funds. And, but, it, but it really didn't center on a true investment opportunity, which in the end, um, we were issuing, we will be issuing or they will be issuing green bonds, which they will use to finance the project and pay an interest rate back to the bond purchaser. Um, and so that whole journey has taken two years to sort of develop. 
and cultivate a relationship with uh, the, the great team at uh, Morgan Stanley. And so that's a good example. And then on the on the money side, uh, there's a there are people like endowments that have a lot of capital. They want to move more into mission investing or program related investing to align with their values. And what they're trying to do is de develop a strategy. They want to understand how do I deploy this so that I minimize my risk, so that I create meaningful impact that is measurable and reportable. Uh, and I don't sacrifice returns. I actually can go after, you know, from one to 8% returns, depending on who it is. So yeah, hopefully that gives you a picture. Ethan. It, it does give me a picture. I'm, I'm just wondering when it comes to someone who specifically spends most of their time in capital markets or is really always after return on investment and minimizing risk, what incentive that or strong incentive they, they will have. And we've had interesting discussions about this on the podcast in the past um, to invest in a, in a carbon drawdown project, for example, like a regenerative farm or even something as simple as a direct air capture plant um, beyond just offsetting their own emissions for public uh, Whatever clout, whatever you want to call it, I'm I'm just wondering how can we incentivize the private sector? What's what's drawing them into this um, this carbon market beyond just like the voluntary market? Um, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, very simply put, if 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 there is no value proposition that can appeal to some willing and able payor or buyer money is not going to come into the sector. It's just as simple as that. And, you know, while I applaud philanthropy for what it can do, I also applaud results-based financing, where the financing is made in return for measurable impact. The type of capital that we want to tap into the trillion dollars worth of institutional capital that is out there, um, trillions of dollars, uh, we need a very strong value proposition, which means we need investable product. And to have investable product, you have to have track record. And if you've got to establish track record, you have to have mitigation. You've got to have risk mitigation that says, Ethan, instead of buying a house for 400K, I want you to put that 400K into this environmental project. And the first thing you're going to say is, well, if I buy a house, I got an asset. I'm a title owner. So I feel good about that. I've also got Zillow data that tells me this house is going to appreciate or whatever. So I'm feeling comfortable. I can also track CPI and I know where the economy is going. But in an, envir in an environmental sense, you don't have that comfort. And so you're less likely to go there. And like all new and emerging markets, the job upon us in this industry is to create standardized offerings where standard mitigation, risk mitigation instruments are used to comfort you we can provide, we need to provide track record that says this project that I'm telling you about, Ethan, we've done 50 times already in the Pacific Northwest. Do not worry. Um, and so it's just a, it's just a process. I mean, if you, if you think about um, any new and emerging market, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's tokens or blockchain, all we're trying to do is, is um, I think Deutsche Bank coined this. I think it was them, TLC, transparency, longevity, and consistency. That's what you need in any market. And the first point of business is to create a value proposition that somebody is interested in paying. And I think this is the biggest problem that we see, Ethan. You have well-meaning scientists, environmentalists, and academics 
who design a solution that has massive uh, climate impact. The problem is that in their enthusiasm to design the solution, they haven't stopped to ask who is the willing and able buyer that will pay for this? And two, are there a lot of these willing and able buyers such that we can scale the solution? And if the answer is no, it's not a, it's, we're just not going to get that private capital in. So that's the nub of the issue. And we actually issued a, uh, a conservation report on this thing where we describe the needed elements of an environmental project as an arch. And the two stones at the bottom of the arch, which are called springers, the first one is you have to be solving a veritable problem, an intractable problem. You have to be solving for something that somebody cares. And the other springer is you must have a willing and able buyer. And then there's a host of other arch elements that you need. But, but if you don't have those two springers in place, you really don't have a market. So, so when it comes to something like direct air capture or reforestation that doesn't have an innate short-term value to the economy, is the only way to incentivize capital into these than to use carbon credits? Is there anything else we can do? Well, you know, so carbon credits have come a long way. Um, for, for, for those of us that have been in the market, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, we've seen huge maturity in the carbon market. Um, it is definitely the most mature environmental asset that you can monetize and sell. Now, there's lots of skeptics out there and so on. The role for an, a carbon credit is very specific in my mind, and it's, and it's attested to by standards like uh, Science-Based Target Initiative and CDP and others. And that is that the first thing you have to do as an entity is obviously internally reduce your own emissions profile. So, you know, your scope one and scope two, and then ultimately scope three in your supply chain, you need to do everything you can to reduce the footprint. And at the end of that, you've got some residual emissions that you just simply can't mitigate. And that's where carbon offsets can help. Carbon offsets are just, in my mind, they're a very cost-effective transition tool because it will take time for re, let's just take Remax, right, as a realtor company. I don't know what Remax's uh, carbon targets are, but um, let's just say. That? Sorry. No, you're good. I said. I said no. I said. I said. Who knows, man? I know they do like one percent, one percent for the planet. A lot of their agents do. Yeah, but but the point I'm getting at is, um, if a company today decides they're going to get serious about uh, climate, um, being a climate positive company. It takes time for them to tap into buying renewable energy, converting their fleet over to electric, making sure they dispose of waste appropriately so that we don't have methane off the, off the, off the um, waste and food and so on. And, and so offsets are what we call a cost containment mechanism. They allow us to deliver positive environmental attributes that are measured while you get your house in order. And that's how they should be. That they they don't they don't replace what should be done internally. So that's really important. But your question is a good one. There's there's been a lot of discussion, and I've been involved in something called the ecosystem service marketplace, where the idea was to monetize carbon, uh, soil carbon, water quality, and water quantity. There are other ecosystem benefits like biodiversity and air quality, uh, species. While we can 
while we can measure those impacts, the question you have to ask yourself is, who is going to pay for a biodiversity credit? And if you don't have an answer to that, it doesn't matter how important measuring and preserving that biodiversity nature preserve is, if there's no one's going to pay for it, you've got a problem. And there are different ways in which we do. We deal. We have mitigation banks. We have some rules and regulations about if you're going to create environmental damage over here, then you have to do a commensurate amount of environmental restoration over there. But but it's far from a mature, liquid, fungible market, which is what we would all want. And until until we, and when I say we, um, I mean all markets need a certain degree of regulatory and policy support, sort of bookends, right? Um, I'm not saying regulation is the answer. I, I'm a big fan of market mechanisms, but market mechanisms need bookends. So, for example, uh, as you'll recall, under President Obama, there was an attribution to carbon. It was the social uh, cost of carbon at around $35 a tonne. In the subsequent administration, that was removed. But but it was very important that the administration put a price on carbon uh, during President Obama's uh, rule because suddenly everything was benchmarked against it. So that's, that's an example of how market mechanisms rely on some sort of policy support. But until we can figure out who values it and who will pay, it's really difficult. Thankfully, the carbon market is being propelled right now by two things, obviously. One is the outcome of the Paris Agreement, uh, which is trying to move us to a 1.5 degree world. And then this huge upsurge in corporate commitments, net zero commitments. And these companies who have set these very ambitious targets to, to reach carbon neutrality are buying offsets as their sort of out there, their, their arrow in their quiver because they need to mitigate those residual emissions. What's happened is the price of offsets has climbed like astronomically. Just over the last year, we've seen prices double um, and supply has been constrained. There's not enough credits on the market. I mean, talk about if you and I having this conversation 24 months ago, I would have lamented how there's too many credits, not enough buyers. Now it's the complete reverse. But, uh, sellers or project developers I have, they have their pick of the litter in terms of who they sell the credits to. It's, it's phenomenal. And in, in one sense, it's really good because finally we're getting the, the type of valuation on a carbon credit that we need. Yeah, that, that's great to hear. Well, we obviously, we need some more projects. So sounds like an, a, a good problem to have. If anything, I hope that trend continues on. And I, I suspect as well as there's a lot of passion and interest in this topic. So Sean, you're, you're a serial entrepreneur. You spent decades thinking about these issues. I'm wondering if you think we can actually um, innovate our way out of this ecological and climate crisis. Will new technology or new industries actually eventually, I don't want to say solve the problem, but get us to a more stable state than where we were, are at now? Yeah, I mean, yeah, under the IPCC, there is a low emissions pathway that that allows us to hit the 1.5 degree threshold, but actually recover from it. Um, so there is that scenario. That's so one of one of one of five, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it relies, you know, on energy and fuel, the oil and gas sector um, and energy to radically 
reduce their emissions. Um, so I think if there was the, the commitment, and, and you see, this is the problem is it, it's, <clears throat> I think it's a misstep to say oil, gas and energy should really figure out how to reduce their emissions. This is where regulatory and policy support really helps. If you look at the, the um, trajectory of renewable energy in this country, the renewable energy portfolio standard, the RPS, that was introduced state after state after state, which basically said for any state's um, energy supply, electricity supply, some portion of it had to come from renewable energy sources, was an incredible accelerant for renewable energy. So there wasn't a mandate. There was just, you know, here's the portfolio standard. These are the targets you must hit. And, but we don't have anything for carbon like that right now. What we, what we do have, the closest, is, um, is Q45, which is a tax credit incentive program where um, com if companies capture and sequester carbon, they can be rewarded between $35 and $50 a ton. This was introduced as part of the tax package under President Trump. Unfortunately, 45Q does not permit the same uh, advantage to that tax credit for nature-based solutions. It's only for technology removals. But the point is, I think we, I don't want to say we can innovate our way out because that sounds sort of a bit empty. Uh, but, but, but I do think it, as long as we uphold the scrutiny on warming, which we're doing now, ever since COP26 at Glasgow, I mean, the attention is really squarely on it. Countries are going to have to report in 2023 how they're meeting their uh, nationally determined contribution plans. And I think technology is responding and investors are seeing opportunities in investing into um, those technologies. I mean, climate tech has experienced a venture uh, growth or an uptick that's never been seen before. Um, I get tons of calls from people in Asia and Europe saying, we're looking at investing in ABC climate tech company. What do you think? Can you do due diligence on them? What's your read on the market and so on? So there's a lot of money that's swirling around those. Um, of course, you know, nature-based solutions can offer 30% of what we need to get to 1.5 degrees. So we don't want that left behind because nature-based solutions offer carbon uh, impact, but a host of other co-benefits like species, like water, like jobs, like so on. So, you know, carbon capture and storage or direct air capture is a wonderful technology solution, but it doesn't have a ton of co-benefits, uh, really. I mean, it gets the job done, right? It mitigates carbon, which is obviously what we need. But, uh, but to me, it's not a question of which solution. It's a question of the suite of solutions that we need for a 1.5 solution. Definitely. Yeah. Before you mentioned, that, I was going to ask you your perspective on, is it CCUS, carbon capture and storage? I know, I think the UK just announced that they're looking to grow that massively because they use a lot of coal fired, coal powered, mm. coal fired power plants. Um, yeah. And I guess that's kind of like a transitionary solution. Would you mind just briefly explaining what that is and then sharing your thoughts on the technology in general? Yeah. I mean, it's basically saying, um, look, you know, at the end of the day, we all need to decarbonize, but we recognize that there are entrenched industrial systems, there are entrenched business models where carbon intensive, intensive industry needs to continue. So what we will do is we'll create an incentive program that has these high emitting industries essentially capture the CO2 at the stack, at the flue and store it, uh, CCUS, carbon capture utilization and storage. 
Um, and if you're able to do that and prove that the carbon has been sequestered permanently, which is a key thing, uh, then we can provide some sort of incentive back to you. There is a huge parallel industry that's emerging where the U comes in, which is the utilization, which yeah. is how can you actually use the carbon that you've captured into byproducts, whether it's cement or other types of uh, products. And I, and I think that that's another area that's going to see a lot of attention uh, because people are saying, well, what can we do with the CO2 as, as opposed to simply uh, sequestering it in a geologic uh, for, uh, formation? So I think it's, again, you know, CCUS is another intermediate step, just like a carbon offset is really. Um, it's a transitionary tool that allows some mitigation with carbon capture, with uh, cost efficiency. The one thing I do want to point out about carbon offsets, though, which is important to me, is you know in a regulated market like California, for example, which is a cap and trade market, covered entities are issued a number of allowances, or they they, they acquire them via auction, I should say. And then there is a declining cap and there is an offset utilization limit, which allows these covered entities to use some portion of their obligation as California carbon offsets. So you have allowances, which are essentially permits to pollute. And then you have a California carbon offset, which represents that some activity mitigated one ton of CO2E. And my contention is whenever people say, you know, carbon offsets allow polluters to kind of do business as usual, pay their way out of it. I always remind them that actually allowances are what allows them to pay their way out of it, right? But a, but a carbon offset represents a specific activity has occurred, it's been verified, and it represents that one ton of CO2 has either been avoided or sequestered, which is wholly different from an allowance. An allowance says, here's your ticket, you can emit one ton of CO2. And so to me, a carbon offset is a very important instrument because it does represent that meaningful action has occurred on the ground. I don't, I don't say that that's all they should use. Decarbonization is absolutely essential, which is the whole point behind the declining cap. The declining cap says to the covered entities, you can't carry on paying your way out of this. You're going to have to do some internal mitigation. Cool. How has your perspective changed on how to most effectively curb greenhouse gas emissions like throughout your career? Um, well, I mean, like everybody, the sense of urgency has been accelerated. Um, the There is a degree of optimism that I have now that I may not have had five or 10 years ago around mobilizing capital. Uh, I think there's... Uh, there is a lot of capital that is interested in investing in this space, as I said before. The question is how to create investable product. I feel more you know, positive about the role that private capital can play. Uh, I think that's a, a positive development. Um, you know, like everybody who's got children, um, I worry about whether we it's not so much whether we have the aptitude, it is simply the will uh, politically from a capital perspective, whether we actually have the gumption to do it. I mean, you know, the human, like I've been, I've been involved in what people might say self-improvement for the last 20 years. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that as humans, 
we tend to procrastinate in general, uh, which is a real calamity. And like everything, uh, I worry that this procrastination on a global level will take us to a place where the, 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 the feedback effects or the feedback, the loop effects of climate warming will be so great that we don't recover. And I do worry about that. Um, and at the end of the day, the responsibility is for policymakers to recognize uh, the importance of it. And I think the thing that I find when I speak to a farmer or a rancher or somebody who's doing a pollination project for bees um, is that they are pleasantly surprised that I understand the marriage between conservation and finance. It's, it's not an either or. And, and it's because I really do believe they can exist in parallel. I think you can earn well by doing good, that old adage. I think that is achievable. We just need more case studies, more examples, more track record, more capital, more risk mitigation, more actors um, in the space. And I'll, I'll tell you, Ethan, just, I mean, what are we in? February? Mm-hmm. The amount of activity in this space, February this year to February last year, I can't even, I mean, I can barely keep up with people who are wanting to talk to us it's uh it's good but it just shows the interest and it also shows the high level of of confusion you know i mean in your industry in the realty industry i'm not saying it's a it's a done science or anything but it's a pretty well understood market you know how the market tracks against inflation and all those things in our world there's very little guidelines and so people are really seeking expert advice so yeah, man, you can barely keep up with your clients and you're coming to talk with me on a podcast for an hour. I, I really appreciate it. That, that means a lot. Well, well, I have uh, Jacoba is, is my um, the other person who she's my operations manager. She 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 carves three hours a week for me to talk to anyone under the sun that wants to talk to me. So I I had three I had an hour and a half for you in my three hour slot. So I'll speak to you. I have no problem. But uh, and it's because because we need more people. I, I speak to graduates. I speak to career change, mid career change people who are like, you know, I used to be in banking. I want to do something in climate or I was a teacher. I want to get a, become a climate activist or whatever it is, because we need more people to be enthused by the opportunity, specifically around climate finance. I mean, my whole thing is it's less about um, doom and gloom. The, the end of the world is now. It's more about how do we mobilize capital? That's my whole thing is like, how can you help bring capital into this market? I love that you have this window and I love that you're interested in bringing capital into the market. That's why it's awesome to talk to you. I'm wondering if you see in the future, many years down the line, a realistic path to bring the, 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 the planet from warming back to cooling and then eventually back to pre-industrial levels or even at this point to be more realistic, pre-1.5C degrees levels because I mean, you and you and I both have seen the IPP, IPCC report. I don't know how people keep talking about 1.5 degrees like we're actually going to to make it. It doesn't seem realistic. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think so on one hand, I think it's inevitable. Early 2030s, you know, 1.5 is going to be the reality. And the question is how we react to that um, leading up to 2030 and, and thereafter. Um I will just say, and there's no scientific grounding behind what I'm going to say, I, I, um, I will say that humans, including myself, once the, once the penny drops, and what I mean by that is sort of categorical, undeniable, in-your-face 
like this is happening humans have an amazing ability to respond um, to any type of crisis once they believe it's real enough and and that is the the ingenuity of the human spirit um, the question is will it be too late because of this forcing function of of, of heating specifically with with the, the heat being held in oceans I think that's a real worry um, that we can sort of engineer our way out of this I think it's possible um, you know all of the technologies we've been talking about all these alternative energy sources like geothermal wind solar um, hydrogen all of them need capital markets to support them they need investment um, and we need whole scale adoption I mean on a massive level you know I'm, I'm here in Palm Springs at the moment and I'm sort of taken as I drive around all these houses the majority like 80 percent in this area that we're in they all have like acres of solar panels on their roof i mean like a lot um and obviously they've got a very good feed-in tariff solar program in california that provides great incentives but that's the kind of stuff that we need um whether it's electric vehicles or renewable energy anyway in short to answer your question i think there's a way we can do it um but it relies on the on the most energy intensive or the carbon intensive industries really buckling down and and uh, adopting a low carbon pathway. If we don't do that, um, we're pretty much uh, challenged. Challenged. It's an interesting way to put it. Well, yeah, I mean, you yeah. bring up this idea of when the penny drops. I'm sure you're familiar with what happened with the hole in the ozone layer. That thing's that thing's closing up now because people actually decided to to care. So. It yeah. can be done. It's yeah. not like it's we've never come together to fix something before. Everyone came together pretty quick on that one. So right, and if you look at if you look at that, and you look at the acid rain program, both of those initiatives, mobilization initiatives, relied on policy or stand like we're going to do something about ozone depleting um, um, ingredients uh, materials, and so this is how we're going to reduce ozone. Uh, or damage the ozone layer. With acid rain, America pioneered the use of, of uh, basically it was a, a, a um, pricing mechanism, just in the same way we've got cap and trade for carbon. And uh, and acid rain is no longer a thing. And so I think you're right. Uh, what will happen or should happen, which has always been the hope that the Paris Agreement would, would essentially do, is bring enough collective responsibility from the signatory countries to say, we are going to do something. Now, one interesting thing that is happening, if you've been following it, is this notion of um, uh, carbon, um, it's a, a, a carbon adjustment at the border, carbon border adjustment, uh, which says that as you, as a country, if you're importing products, if it's too carbon intensive, there's gonna be essentially a tariff or a, a you know, it's punitive on it. And I think that's a good way, I'm not saying that's the way, but it's, it's an interesting example of how industry, capital industry, is figuring out how to ensure that other countries collectively share the burden. So I think that's an interesting approach. Um, you know, the green the the, the um, green climate fund that emerged out of Paris, it's supposed to be allocating a you know billions of dollars to least uh, emerging countries, least developing countries. But this is all on a sort of donor basis, um, and they haven't been able to deploy the capital. Countries are short on their climate commitments when it comes to the funding that was supposed to have issued. And to me, the way we're going to get there is where industry actually mobilizes and says, which is what, look at what the airline industry is doing under Cosia. Cosia says, the Cosia effort is to say, we're going to take our airline industry 
carbon neutral by 2035. We're going to undertake sustainable aviation fuel initiatives. We're going to decarbonize, and we're going to invest in high, credible uh, quality offsets sourced from uh, the, the leading registries. And I think it's really smart what they're doing because they're not waiting for regulation. They're saying we are responsible. If we want a social license to operate, we have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to be passe. I love that. Yeah, I continue to maintain faith in markets and capitalism because it's run by individual people and the consumers can decide with their by voting with their dollars which products are the best. So exactly. on that note, what advice do you have for triple bottom line startup companies when it comes to first entering the market and communicating their visions to the general public? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's a plethora of companies touting you know, alignment with the sustainable development goals and um, an environmental ethos. I, I think in this day and age, if if a company cannot transparently communicate with authenticity the impact they're trying to or are achieving on the ground, how they measure that, and how the the various co-benefits or positive impacts are being measured and reporting. It all just turns into a word salad. Um, and interestingly enough, I had a call with with, um, with someone who was asking us for some advice about five different companies in the climate space. And all these companies had different names. But what I pointed out to these people was when you read the about us, they all say the same gibberish. It's all, you know, we, you know, high integrity satellite imagery, LIDAR sensing, co-benefits, community building, impact tracking, all the same nonsense, really. And I happen to know a number of these companies, and I know that what they've got on their website isn't necessarily what they actually are able to do. I'm not saying that they're not telling the truth. They just haven't got to where they need to be. And so I think it's really important to be authentic and transparent. I think the, the whole world of consumers that you just referenced they're becoming increasingly aware that what they buy, they have an ability to influence where it comes from, how it got there, how it was treated, who was responsible for it, and what kind of certifications or claims are made around these things. And that was heightened by COVID with the, with the collapse of the supply chain. People started trying to find alternatives and for the first time started looking at where the stuff came from. I mean, nobody knew stuff came from Asia or wherever they didn't pay attention to it. And so for, for companies starting out, I think that's that's number one. Of course, um, when you go back to our Arch um, framework that we developed, is the startup solving an identified needed problem? Is it solving for that problem? And two, are they willing and able people, clients, consumers, corporations that are willing to buy that startup service or product? That question has to be resolved at the get-go. Um, and then there are different elements of the arch that have to be populated for any startup to be able to answer yes, 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 yes. One of the one of the elements of the arch that's also critical is the keystone stone, which holds the arch up in the center. And that keystone in our framework, we have labeled team. And so when it comes to a, a startup, having the right team is critical. It doesn't matter how good the idea is. And that's coming back to what I was saying earlier. You have a bunch of well-intentioned academics who are designing an on-the-ground solution for a, for, a, uh, for a village or a community in Uganda. And the Ugandans didn't 
ask the academics to do anything. The, the academics didn't even consult the Ugandans, but the academics say, congratulations, we've just solved something for you. And the Ugandans say, I wasn't part of that. I didn't co-create that. I didn't even ask for the solution. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. So, you know, our advice to, to environmental startups is look at the ARCH framework. Uh, we've got it on our website, gordiannotstrategies.com under resources. And really take to heart each one of those ARCH elements, because if you address the ARCH elements in their entirety, you've got a good chance of succeeding. If you don't, you're going to have holes. Yeah, business is tough. I got to check out the ARCH framework for sure. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is if you think it's worth going after customers who are disengaged with social issues, even if you know you have a superior product to what's currently on the market. For example, me going door to door in Boulder saying, hey, I'm a full service real estate broker. I'll do all the things that every other real estate realtor does. Plus I get up at 4.30 in the morning. I answer every single one of my phone calls and all my emails. And on top of that, I'm going to donate half of my commissions to nonprofits working on fighting climate change. I've found it's it's not, I mean, because prospecting is a lot of work. At a certain point, I, I love engaging in discourse with people, people who are disengaged from environmental issues. I have no issue with that. I think people can live their lives in any way they want to. But the problem is I, I love talking to them. So I'll end up wasting an hour of prospecting time talking to someone about um, whether the sun is the largest contributing factor to greenhouse gas emissions. So I wanted to ask you if you think it's worth going after people who are disengaged in um, maybe your your val your company values, even if you know your product or service would be a good fit for them. No. Yeah, that that, that that's a pretty that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> but let me let me elaborate. Um, to me, there is it's absolutely essential that you that you obviously identify. Um, your target consumer, buyer, client, whatever it is, um, for different reasons, of course. One is to shorten your sales cycle so that the, that the conversation you're having in their home is 30 minutes and it all you get a lot of head nodding. But, but, but more importantly, perhaps, um, you are trying to leverage the halo effect. You're trying to get those people that understand what it is that you're doing to become your evangelists to tell other people, their neighbors, who don't really care about these issues or not aware of these issues, hey, you should call Ethan because here's what he told me and this is why it was important to me and that neighbor can relate to the other neighbor. And so I, I, I really subscribe to focus on the target persona or the target client, I should say, or persona, and, uh, and, and use, the, use the halo effect where as you build your business model, people who are not familiar with or intimately connected with climate issues, start seeing your for sale signs, your billboards and all of this traction and going, hey, what is this? And should I look into it? I mean, that's kind of guerrilla marketing 101, as you well know. But I would, if you want to affect the change that you want to see, going after your, your halo consumer is going to be well worth it, in my opinion. I think that's that's been proven by a lot of case studies as well. Um, I'm forgetting the actual study, but the the idea of crossing the chasm and getting past the in, the right. innovators, early adopters, reaching that early majority, then it's like, oh, you know, everyone's selling their house with climate change realty, or then donating thousands of dollars seems like a no brainer to me. Yeah, Sean, it's been great so having we, you on the podcast. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say for us on Gordian, you know, we are very clear. There's a bell curve of target cons of target clients. You know, you've got the 
people that are risk averse, low budget, don't really believe in climate change, all the way to the other side of the curve where they're innovators, they want to catalyze, they want to be seen as leaders, and they want to help support something. We don't talk to anyone left of the of the uh, innovation line. We don't even, we're just like, you know what? It's not worth it. While I can educate you, you know, if you're not ready to be, as they say, the teacher shows up when you're ready. And if they're not ready, I'm not going to be the teacher. Yeah. I just have trouble finding those people when I'm, I'm weeding through the cold calls, but I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but if you if you were able to identify some key indicators of those profile, and, and for example, you know, they donate to one of the environmental, they listen to NPR, they subscribe to the New York Times or whatever, whatever attribute it is and say, okay, those are the people that it's a good indicator that they may be receptive as opposed to just knocking on every door, right? I mean, you know, you know your job better than me. I'm just saying that's the thought that occurs to me. Seems like a good thought to me. Well, Sean, uh, before I let you go, I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm really big into the gym. I love exercising, and I I, uh, I need to consume a lot of protein. I eat a plant-based diet. Um, I think I can help you. Yeah, I think you might be able to. I, I have these big plastic tubs that come to my house every single week from Orgain Organic Protein. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your uh, most recent venture, Mindful Proteins, before we sign off. Yeah, yeah. Briefly, uh, thanks for asking. So about a decade ago, I started practicing yoga uh, because I damaged my meniscuses on my knee, and um, I, I I really got into yoga. It's it's had a huge, profound effect on my life. Actually, it led me to meditation and all sorts of other interesting things. But anyway. While I was doing, I do power vinyasa yoga. And so while I was doing this, I realized I was shedding a lot of muscle weight. And I couldn't figure it out because I was doing these highly intensive um, training routines for like 90 minutes. And I did a bit of research and I'm like, oh, okay. I don't, I'm not consuming enough protein, obviously, because protein helps build muscle mass. So hop on Amazon and I start looking for, I didn't know the term at the time, but I was looking for clean label protein, like stuff that didn't have artificial junk in it. And I ordered a bunch of them and they all tasted awful. They all had unpronounceable ingredients. Uh, it was just absolutely awful. And at the same time, I read an article by a Eastern European researcher who, who migrated, uh, immigrated to the US. And he pointed out in his research paper that the protein production of foods, food, our food supply chain has decreased from the early 1900s so that a loaf of bread in early 1900s to a loaf of bread now is 30 or 40% less in protein value. And that shocked the heck out of me, especially having kids and so on. And so um, I decided that I was going <laughs> to create a, a product that I would drink after yoga that would help me with hydration and muscle recovery. And so I formed Mindful Proteins with my co-founder, Jacobo Gundel. And our first product is Tartu protein-infused water, and it's 15 grams of high-quality New Zealand whey protein isolate in a can, 30% um, 30, 30 of your daily protein intake. It tastes delicious, unlike these other products that taste like uh, radiator fluid with some stevia. And, uh, <laughs> and the stuff works like crazy. And so we did a whole lot of market fit testing and did our production run last year. We're in market of choice this week, actually, in, in all 11 stores in, in Oregon. And we're going to be going on to Amazon and all those good things. So Gordian Art Strategies is on climate and Mindful Proteins is on functional food and beverages. But they're related, right? It's all to do with what's happening in a changing climate. 
Well, it, it comes in an aluminum can, doesn't it? Yes. The it most recyclable item that we have on the planet. Yeah, we, we specifically chose that over septic packaging or glass or, or plastic. We, we wanted, you can see on our website, everything is about carbon footprint. Like we want to produce in the Pacific Northwest. We want to distribute in the Pacific Northwest. We want the lowest carbon intensive packaging, cans, label. Everything must be, um, you know, all our inks that we print with are, are water soluble and friendly. Like we, we are a protein or functional food and beverage company that's 100% aligned with the um, sustainable development goals. Like we really live and breathe it. I'd expect nothing less. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure, man. Any last pieces of advice for young people who are passionate about building a better world? Well, I, I, I got to say to you, man, what you're trying to do is an incredible niche. Uh, I think it's incredibly innovative and exciting. I think there's a, a, a model to blow it out. I, I really do. I, I don't like, I think, I think it could be an, a, a new way or a national way under your leadership to sell a house with, with impact and meaning. Um, it, it's a question of the value proposition. I mean, you donating half the proceeds is incredibly compelling. Um, but remember for the homeowner, like what's in it for them, right? Yes. The fact that you donated, that's good. I love it. I love the messaging, but it's the what's in it for me piece that, I think you need to solve for. And if you solve that, you're off to the races. So uh, I, my advice is like, A, I applaud the innovation, but B is hunt it to ground. I think you're like two thirds of the way there, but you need the last third to really crack that thing open. I appreciate that. And then general advice for people who aren't Ethan Shapiro, who are passionate about helping the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think find the problem that you believe is a problem, examine that problem, and then answer the next question is, if I solve this problem, who will pay for it? If you can answer those two things, then you develop an initiative, a program, uh, a business, a community effort, whatever it is, but solve those two questions and, and, and you've got a good chance of making a positive impact. Very good, very entrepreneurial, Sean. Th thanks so much for taking some time, I really appreciate it. All right, yeah, nice to chat to you, man. Have a good weekend. You too. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.